you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter six. We're in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, and today we come across one of the miracles of Jesus that is the only miracle that is reported in all four Gospel accounts. There is something striking and significant about this scene beyond the obvious wow factor and beyond the obvious how question. How does he do this? The deeper question is the title of our series, Who is this Son of Man? We will catch a glimpse of the answer to that question that will not be fully revealed until we get to the end of Mark's gospel. For now, chapter 6, starting in verse 30. Listen carefully. These are God's words. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him, ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, these signs were for the people and for our benefit, not significant in and of themselves, not magic tricks, certainly, but pointers to something about who you are and why you came. Give us more than a glimpse in the fullness of the gospel. Reveal truth abundantly to us and let it satisfy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today's passage connects back to verse 13, Because one guy, Jesus, has been speaking authoritative words and doing some amazing things, and all of a sudden, overnight, there are six additional teams speaking, proclaiming this message, and doing deeds among the people. And so Mark uh, gave us a flashback, last week's passage, Steve pointed us to, about Herod, verse 14 of chapter 6, who heard about this because the people were buzzing. The people were wondering if John the Baptist, whom Herod had previously beheaded, if John the Baptist had risen from the dead and was the one responsible for these miracles. 
The disciples had gone out on mission, proclaiming a message and demonstrating mercy. The message was repentance and faith in the Lord. The mercy was healing of physical and spiritual diseases, signs that the king had come, signs that uh, God's promises to make all things new were coming. These were just foretastes of what he was about to do. Now, in our text, the disciples are back with Jesus reporting, verse 30, all they had done and taught, but they can't even debrief because the crowds are crowded around them. They've gathered. They're demanding. And so Jesus makes the suggestion that they head off in a boat to a quiet place, but the people are so desperate. They run from all the towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee, head them off. Sometimes um, voyages on the sea were excruciatingly long because of the, the headwind. And these people get to the landing spot. In verse 34, we read this, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. That leads us to our first point, comfort versus compassion. Comfort versus compassion. Jesus, early on in his public ministry, is already in high demand. The crowds, the paparazzi, the religious leaders, the Pharisees are all always following his every move. He doesn't want the attention but it's there. He doesn't want it because people jump to the wrong conclusions about why he has come. And he's not yet ready, they're not yet ready to receive the full message of his ministry. Hardly a moment to himself, day after day, unless his driver or his rowers get him out of town fast. And twice now, Mark has shared this detail that shows up again in verse 31. They did not even have a chance to eat. I don't know about you, but when things get in the way of a meal, I get a little hangry <laughs> because the idol of comfort must be appeased. And that's a flaw in me, no doubt. Um, sometimes what I want most in appeasing the idol of comfort is to be left alone to do as I please, to read a book, to listen to some music, to, to, to watch part of the Yankee game. Yay, we're back to um, expect, this idol of comfort expects that everyone around me knows exactly how to behave, what to say, what not to say, because the idol of comfort assumes that I am the star around of which everyone else orbits. I don't know if that at all strikes a resemblance to factors in your life. But if there was a moment when Jesus could have blocked his ears, lost his temper, rolled his eyes, harbored the seeds of resentment in his heart because the idol of comfort was not being satisfied, it would be now because he's trying to get away, verses 31 and 32. He, he's nobly thinking of, of his disciples as well who've come back exhausted from this missions trip two by two and they need some R&R. But Jesus doesn't react like I would react when he saw the crowds, when he lands, perhaps when his heart sinks, non-sinfully speaking, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were aimless. They were lost. They were 
vulnerable to self-destruction as well as in danger of spiritual predators all around them. So what does Jesus do? He began to teach them many things. We'll come back to that in a minute. If the idol of comfort is fairly common, ironically, there's another category of idols that tends to feed it. I say ironically because the opposite of sitting on the couch, chillaxing, seems to be workaholism, overscheduling, busyness. But the antidote to overwork is not being a couch potato. Overwork is connected to the self-delusion that I must make my own security. I must make my own sense of belonging. I I must achieve, uh, make a name for myself, going back to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. I must achieve my own sense of worth and maintain happiness by managing all the circumstances in life. Basically, it's this attitude. More of me is the solution to life's challenges within me and outside of me. More of me is the solution. That's really what the, uh, the, the delusion is all about, and that leads to exhaustion and the counter-delusion that what I most need is for people to leave me alone so I can do nothing What's the real antidote? Receiving as a gift at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's promise, his desire, his fatherly longing to give you everything that you're battling and striving and clawing for, trusting that ultimate status and belonging and worth, and yes, happiness and satisfaction are found through trusting the Lord, walking by faith with him, accessing it by faith, and then remembering it over and over, sitting at the feet of Jesus, meditating on his word, chewing on it, praying it back to him, claiming it as your own. Jesus is not overworking, by the way. He'll find, no doubt, some time for the disciples weary from their ministry to rest. He will see to it because he's a good shepherd. But he's not overworking. How could I say that, not knowing the circumstances particularly? Because Jesus has nothing to prove. Jesus has nothing to scratch and claw for. Hebrews chapter one tells us that Jesus the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He doesn't need greater status to achieve. He doesn't need to make a name for himself. He has the name as above every other name. Philippians chapter two. He's strengthened by perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit at all times. In John chapter four, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He doesn't need to overwork because he has nothing to prove and he is content and satisfied at all times. He's got the food, the sustenance of the mission of the Father. He's in his perfect will. Uh, just this week, a, a recent survey by the Barna Group was published, shared, and the survey of U.S. adults showed a sharp drop between January, pre-pandemic, and June, three months into the pandemic, in the percentage of people who say they read their Bible every day. In fact, it dropped to such a low percentage that in the 10 years of doing this study, the Barna Group has never seen this low of a percentage of Americans who say they read their Bible every day. And, and it makes you scratch your head. 
what's going on? Whatever the reasons that we might hypothesize, my question this morning would be, what about you? How has the disruption of everything, everything, affected your running to Jesus, listening to his voice, sitting at his feet? Has a pandemic that nobody could ever have predicted, at least the, the, the scale of and the, and the duration of it so far, has a pandemic convinced you that science and healthcare and the economy, and the government, and real estate values, none of it can keep you secure and promise you a future. None of it. If a pandemic has not shaken those foundations, then what will? If you don't know where to start, join us Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings. We're still spending a half hour, 7 to 7.30 a.m., walking through the Psalms, in a half-hour devotion. Uh, All you gotta do is log on and open your Bible. And Sunday and Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. for a half hour of kingdom prayer. Those aren't the answer, but if you fall in that lowest percentage of American adults who are not reading your Bible daily, not running to Jesus for hope in the midst of everything else falling apart around us, start with some baby steps. That leads us secondly to uh, hosting a banquet. Um, I, I want to point out here that Jesus is not the only preacher whose sermon sometimes goes long, okay? Verses 35, verses 34 to 35, give us this little hint. By this time, it was late in the day. Why? Because he's been teaching. He's been preaching for a long time. It's getting late, so the disciples say, the people should go so they can find something to eat because it's getting late in the day. And Jesus says, shockingly, you give them something to eat, verse 37. I don't think anyone, let alone these 12 apostles, had ever considered single-handedly feeding that mass of a crowd, let alone um, out of their own pocket. When they say in shock, that would cost more than a half year's wages, I don't think anyone had actually taken the time ahead of time to calculate how much it would take out of their own pockets to feed that kind of massive crowd. I think that's just the, the biggest, roundest number that comes to a fisherman's mind, a, an amount that he's never seen all at once, living, fishing net to fishing net, day to day. How could that be? There are no markets, caterers, takeout places to order ahead, restaurants, So this is not possible financially or logistically. 5,000 men plus women and children. What they probably think but don't say is, you're crazy, Jesus. And maybe a more polite version is, we don't have what it takes to do what you're asking us to do. Jesus' response, we could put two and two together, is part one, No, you don't, but I do. And part two, I want you to offer your not enough so I can transform it into more than enough. 
you are correct in saying and thinking, you do not have what it takes to do what I'm asking you to do, but I have what it takes. But I still want your meager not enough so that I can transform it into more than enough. What they had wasn't much. Five loaves of bread do not think warm, crusty, chewy baguettes straight from the bakery. These were hard, dry rolls that you'd find on the bottom of a backpack, you know, emergency provisions. John's gospel account of this particular miracle tells us that it was barley bread, which was poor man's bread. Not much. Five little rolls of dry, crusty bread. And the fish, not fresh grilled bronzino straight from the Mediterranean or sauteed Chilean sea bass on the bed of spinach, but little sardine-sized fish preserved in salt. If this scene seems too incredible to believe, just keep in mind, 5,000 men plus women and children. That's how they counted back then. Just like the Exodus, right? 600,000 Israelite men leaving Egypt from all over Galilee. Mark's gospel written and circulating within 20 years of Jesus' death. Why do I point that out? Because so many people, 5,000 men plus women and children, could easily have rejected this story if it wasn't true or, because it is, confirmed it very easily. I was there. I, I had no food, and all of a sudden, I ate all the bread and fish that I could, as well as my family and friends who were there with me. I can't explain it. It just happened. If you're making stuff up about a Messiah figure, if you're a guy like Mark saying, I'm going to write a gospel account and add a few things here and there to make him more godlike, more deity-like, more supernatural and powerful, you know, the, the Lord of lords over the sea and demons, you do not include a, an account that involves 5,000 men plus women and children because that kind of crowd can easily refute the details that you put in your gospel, but Mark doesn't worry about these things because it happened, and he's just telling it like it is. Some critical theologians over the, the centuries have come up with all kinds of explanations for this scene to avoid anything supernatural, and here's an example I came across. Jesus prepared for this event. He knew the crowds were following him, so he kind of steered them to one location. And ahead of time, for weeks, he was stashing food in a cave near the Sea of Galilee so that when the crowds came, he thought, perfect timing. So the disciples formed a bucket brigade and, and, and went into the cave and handed man to man the fish and the bread, and because Jesus, like a typical teacher of the time, would have these long flowing robes with loose sleeves, the last guy slipped him the fish and the bread through the back of his robe, and he just kept offering it to his, the people. A miracle. Who would have ever thunk that 5,000 people could be fed? Crazy stuff that theologians have come up with, critical theologians who don't believe that the, the, the Word of God is authoritative and revealed through the Holy Spirit to come up with any kind of explanation that is not supernatural. 
but as we've said since Mark chapter three, either Jesus is crazy, just like his family thought, or he's demon-possessed, just like the religious leaders thought, or he is Lord over all, the king who has come. And we need not go through mental gymnastics to figure out how he could possibly have fed 5,000 because all of creation is at his beck and call. Speaking of which, the king has come. John's account of this, uh, of this miracle, remember all four gospel accounts include this. Uh, John includes the crowd's reaction. In John 6, verse 15, they intended to come and make him king by force. Wow, a guy who can do this? He's the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He can accomplish for us overthrow. They wanted a revolution. They were hungry more for, for that than for food. They, they'd willingly have skipped a day of eating if this was the guy that all of Israel has been looking for. They wanted a revolution. They wanted political overthrow. They wanted freedom from the Roman Empire to do as they pleased as Israel. They wanted to replace a godless king serving his own interests Herod, last week's passage, right before our, uh, our text. They wanted to overthrow a godless king with the true king of Israel. And yes, that's who Jesus is. And yes, Jesus will demonstrate ultimate power to deliver his people from oppression. And yes, Jesus will lead his followers into absolute and lasting freedom, but it'll look very different from the crowd's fantasy in this moment. That's part of the reason why he says, don't tell anyone in select instances of miracles because that will happen. The whole wrong-headed notion of what the Messiah has come to do will start spreading like wildfire. It's unavoidable at this point. Jesus says, I will do these things, just not the way you think I will. Don't over-spiritualize our text though. Yes, Jesus is the bread of life, John chapter six. Yes, Jesus is living water, John four and John seven. But Jesus fills empty stomachs that are hungry. He hosts a banquet, meager and mundane as it may have been. Hungry people in need become full people in abundance. Like manna from heaven and water from a rock during Israel's wilderness experience. Jesus provides. He is the greater Moses. And the result, verses 42 and 43, they all ate and were satisfied. Verse 43, 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Satisfaction in abundance is the result. What about today? A common reason that people give for not believing in the existence of God or not believing in God as a pattern of life, a common reason giving, given is the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. They go hand in hand. Uh, and it goes like this. If God could just snap his fingers, if this account were true, and if God could just snap his fingers and create food out of nothing, why are there still starving children all around the world? Why do people die of hunger if God is loving and powerful enough? Either he is not powerful enough and therefore he's not God because he can't do anything about it, or he is powerful and he won't do anything about it, which is even worse because he's a harsh deity who is uncaring 
about the suffering of people. It's a huge topic that we could spend a series on. I just want to point us to one thought. I think verse 37 is a very relevant part of addressing that challenge when Jesus says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. You give them something. This doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the wealth of the world, and probably even just in the U.S., is more than sufficient to ensure that no child ever went hungry around this globe. I don't think that's in question. When churches partner with nonprofits and NGOs to feed the hungry, to provide clean water for those in deepest poverty, that is not something apart from the gospel that Jesus has come to announce. The kingdom of God has come. No, we don't go... um, swing to the other side and care for the body and ignore the soul. But both go together. Remember the disciples' first missions trip when they went out two by two earlier in Mark chapter six. It's all in the same chapter. Their mission involved, we said, a message and acts of mercy. Message and mercy, hand in hand. They they come back and report to Jesus, our verse, all they had done and taught mercy and message. Feeding the poor is more than a compelling humanitarian goal. I didn't plan this to um, compliment Werner's diaconal um, report uh, regarding our partnership with Star of Hope. By the way, that moved me, 35,000 kids. That has been the privilege that God has given GRC and our friends and our, our, our family Um, the privilege to partner with. Praise him. Praise him. Let's keep that up. Um, Especially Andy Silderman, who I think I saw 12 times moving around in every every image. Andy uh, at home, a little shout out to you, a member of GRC. But feeding the poor is more than a compelling humanitarian mission. It pushes against the brokenness of our world that is a result of sin. It says God is not going to put up with that because the king has come and he is at work making all things new through the ministry of Jesus. Feeding the hungry should point ahead to that consummation of the kingdom of God which came in the person of Jesus and will be finished and completed and and wrapped up in a bow with the return of Jesus on the last day. So when we say the king has come in the person of Jesus, the authority he wields will not tolerate poverty. It will not tolerate the murdering of the unborn. It will not tolerate the king has come racial injustice. It will not tolerate sex trafficking or the destructive power of pornography. All of this are implications of the king coming to make all things new and the people of God should never be content with looking around in our broken world saying, that's too bad. Until he returns, the mission of the people of God naturally involves speaking of Jesus, proclaiming the message, and doing the work, carrying on the work of Jesus, acts of mercy and teaching. Lastly, we go to take and eat. 
take and eat. In this and many other ancient cultures, bread was life. Bread was life. I think back to my own cultural heritage. You know, the, the Chinese word for a food is the same as for rice, right? So in an Asian culture, rice is life, and, and Latino cultures too. Um, we have that in common. Bread was life. But, but the significance of that statement to this scene is not the miracle of feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. Bread was life. That's not the central significance to this passage. It, the central significance is in verse 34. And verse 34 likely represents hours of Jesus teaching the crowd many things from the word of God. That is the central significance of the statement, bread is life, to John chapter 6. When Jesus was in the wilderness, right before he began his public ministry, he was tempted by Satan. And three times he answered Satan with the word of God. One time he said this, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's not saying bread is something different than life. He's like, yeah, bread is life, but you don't just survive on that kind of bread. You survive on this kind of bread, which is life, the word of God. The, the two go hand in hand, message and mercy. So here, when he feeds the people, it's far more than a meal. When he gets the miracle, it's a continuation of his teaching about the kingdom of God. It's as if Jesus is saying, I have come to feed you. I've come to sustain you. I've come to show you that this is the way of life. This is what sustains, what pushes away unhealth and even death. So you want your problems to go away? You want your career to turn around and start to, to thrive? You, you want healing in your broken life? You want um, things that are wrong fixed? You want justice instead of injustice? You want meaning, not questions? You want relationships to energize you and fulfill you, not drain you and erode at your heart? You want spiritual truth in the light? and not deception and falsehood in darkness, I have come to make all things new. I have come to give you life, to lead you to that which is all satisfying, your hunger and your thirst, I can quench, Jesus would say. How will he do this? How will he keep all those grand promises? The way he prepares for this miracle gives us the answer, verse 41. He took the bread, just listen to me. He took the bread, he looked up to heaven, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples so that they can distribute it. Does that sound familiar? We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper next week, by the way. How will he keep all of his promises? He gives us his, this, this little foretaste, this glimpse and if you've read the Gospels or even if you've, you've attended church in the past, you, you, you think, oh, I've heard that before. And it's the, the climax of Mark's Gospel and all the other Gospels. 
Jesus, on the night before he was executed on the cross, preparing a meal. A little detail that Mark gives us in, um, where is it? Verse um, 39. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in grass, groups on the green grass. It's one of those details where you think, oh, it's not really central to learning who Jesus is and what God has done for us in Christ. They sit down on green grass. Why does he tell us this? This is Israel. It has a typically Mediterranean climate with long, hot, dry summers. If there is grass, let alone green grass, it has to be late spring. And if it's late spring, it's around the time of the Passover. And if you think that's wild guessing, John's version of this miracle tells us exactly that, John chapter six, verse four. It was around the time of the Passover feast. Huh. On the last night of his life, Jesus gathers with his closest 12 for the Passover meal, a meal with greatest tradition in the nation of Israel, but a meal that Jesus is going to transform and inject with even fuller meaning. Why? Because all of those lambs were slain to deliver Israel, or at least as a pointer to delivering Israel, starting with the Passover, originally speaking, and getting them out of Egypt. And Jesus says, there is one final, perfect, ultimate Passover lamb who will be sacrificed, whose blood will be shed for redemption, and I am that lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. The Passover meal becomes something even richer, a new sacramental meal for the people of God, connected to the past, infused with greater meaning. And what does he say in this meal? Mark chapter 14, take and eat. This is my body. And then this is my blood of the covenant. Remember my mention of manna from heaven, bread falling out of the sky while Israel was in the wilderness? Ultimately, it didn't satisfy. Worse than that, the Lord says through the prophet Hosea, I cared for you, Israel, in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. They were in need. God provided. They were satisfied. They became proud and forgot him. Folks, we need to meditate on that because we're all guilty of that. Taking from God and then forgetting him. In contrast, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Here's the difference. Heavenly bread, manna in the wilderness, heavenly bread, Jesus, in announcing the kingdom has come. When you treat God as a means to an end, when you see him as your divine heavenly assistant to aid you in your life adventure with you behind the steering wheel deciding where to go, and he conveniently drops bread from heaven or whatever other circumstance answer to your prayer that you're asking for, you and I so easily become proud. 
Look what I have done. Footnote, thanks God. More me is the solution to life's problems with a little help from my friend over here. But faith in Christ. But faith in Christ, in great contrast, requires a deep humility that God is working in your whole heart and soul by the power of the Holy Spirit that shows you not only your vulnerability and your need, but your helplessness before the judge of all the earth. And it involves this surrender before Jesus because your sin deserves judgment. That's the, that's the work that only the Holy Spirit can bring you to recognize that your personal sin deserves the judgment of the Father. But then, faith in Jesus involves absolute trust that he has done what you could never do. Satisfy the justice of the Father and earn the Father's approval because of his perfect, righteous life, both offered to you to access, though you don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it, to access by faith that he might give you instead the riches of his abundance and grace. This is the gospel according to Mark. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you offer us to take and eat. May we pause and recognize that that is the greatest invitation that has ever been extended to sinful humanity. Because we don't just eat and drink out of ritual, we eat and drink by faith. Do we believe in you, Jesus? Do we crave what you alone can provide? Do we believe that you have all things to satisfy? If not, Lord, bring us to that place. If so, cause us to revel in the abundance of your grace and let the things of this world go strange, grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.